The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 29. A Little of What You Fancy. We didn't find out the true extent of our success until John W. bought us a slap-up lunch in his hotel the next day. Stan and I had spent most of the intervening time scrubbing and dousing ourselves in what perfume we could lay our hands on, and we were now just about presentable for polite company. Considine was gleeful, and even the self-contained Mr. Jobson was having difficulty concealing a smirk. While Wimmy, Stan and I tucked into our celebratory stakes, the entrepreneur talked us through the previous evening at Alexander Pantage's grand opening. King Greek himself came out onto the front apron to make a speech, all puffed up and full of himself, and all the swells of Winnipeg were there to see it. The mayor was there, the state governor, he even had the British consul and his wife there, front and centre, in all their finery. Wimmy nodded approvingly. All his best practical joke stories featured persons of note, of course. Considine went on. The little snake spoke proudly about how this theatre would be the jewel of the Pantages circuit and a source of pride and joy for the good city of Winnipeg itself, the place he was proud to call home. He described the innovative new cooling system that he had installed especially for them, his people, and then he gave the signal for it to be turned on. We could all see the stage manager smiling proudly as he threw the switch, and we could just faintly hear the fans starting up down below. People began to applaud, and then suddenly... Ah! The stench! It wafted up as if from the very bowels of hell itself. Women screamed, grown men gagged. Everywhere people clamped handkerchiefs to their faces. It was horrible! Horrible! Stan and I shared a look across the table. We could quite believe it. Wimmy was hugging himself, chuckling. Considine spread his hands wide, acting out the finale to his story. Pantages stood before them, holding his hands out for calm, and he was getting the worst of it, you could tell. He was going green. His eyes rolled up into his head, and all of a sudden he fell to his knees and vomited into his own orchestra pit. Tears of laughter sprung to the big man's eyes. I'll tell you, boys, I won't forget this in a hurry. No, sir. I turned to Mr. Walker, who was chortling away too. It's a shame you didn't see it, eh, Wimmy? Don't worry, my boy, he said. When I tell it back at the spoofferies, I shall have done. The next weekend, the Carnot boxcar rattled along through the wide-open spaces of Montana towards Butte and its all-you-can-eat buffet. Most of the Carnots were dozing, except for those seated near to Whimsical Walker, who was reminiscing about making this very trip with some circus or other by wagon train before the railway was even thought of. He'd had some fascinating encounters with Red Indian tribes along the way and reckoned his performances had made a big impression on them. I looked across at Chaplin, who was one of those trying to snooze rather than listening to old Wimmy's circus memories. As I watched, he slid slowly along the back of his seat until his head was resting on the shoulder of the person snoozing next to him, who was Tilly. She shifted slightly, and Chaplin's head dropped further until he was nestling in her lap. She stroked his hair maternally, and I saw a half-smile appear on his chops. He was awake, of course he was, and I ground my teeth with jealousy. I was so preoccupied that I barely noticed the delectable Mrs. Hurley slipping over to join me until she was right alongside. "'Arthur,' she said softly. "'Oh, hello, Wren,' I said. "'We haven't really spoken, have we, for the last little while?' Four weeks,' I said, "'apart from hello and good evening.' "'Exactly. Since... well, since... since... "'Yes, that's right. I, I wanted to say, "'well, I can only imagine what you must think of me.' "'No, please, don't worry. Nothing bad, I promise you,' I said. "'In fact, I'd been thinking of her often, of course, "'and in particularly glowing terms.' 
Just having her sit close to me again was reminding me quite forcibly of one or two of those intoxicating daydreams. She leaned in close, squashing herself against my arm as was her way, ignoring, trampling even, the expected decorum of a married lady sitting with a single gent. "'We can't talk here. Not properly. Not while everyone's within earshot,' she whispered. "'Most of them are asleep,' I said. "'Yes, but not all. Not all. Come on.' Wren stood and swayed nimbly through the curtain into the props and costumes compartment. I sat where I was for a moment or two, trying to see if anyone was watching, but then I risked it and followed her through into the dark.' At the far end of the storage section I could see the daylight streaming in through the door that led to the outside observation platform, but Wren was not silhouetted there waiting. While I peered into the shadows I felt her hand on my arm, and she was beside me. "'It's too cold out there,' she whispered. "'Yes,' I said, "'you're probably right. I wanted to apologise, really, for throwing myself at you that time.' "'No apology necessary,' I said, with what I hoped was appropriate gallantry. "'I was feeling lonely and rejected and... Well, quite. Me too, actually. And the feel of a strong young man's arms around me after so long. Me too. That is, I mean to say, the sweet-smelling, soft-yielding form of a, of a beautiful woman. I just got, quite understandable, carried away. We both said the last two words together, and then stopped. We looked into one another's eyes for a moment, and then that moment became longer and longer, and finally it became unbearable. With a moan and a gasp we flung ourselves together, her arms flew round my neck, pulling me down to her, and I clasped her round the waist, lifting her up onto her toes. Our mouths met hungrily, our tongues explored and danced together, and I realised that she'd been imagining this every bit as much as I had. Part of me was aware that this was an incredibly dangerous thing to be doing. All the others were just beyond a single curtain. Her husband, who would take a dim view, our boss, Ditto, Tilly, how would I explain, Chaplin, who would be simply gleeful, not to mention the best part of a dozen of the biggest gossips you could ever hope to be stuck in her boxcar with. Wren knew it too, and yet... We clung to one another, sliding fingers inside clothing, feeling for warm skin, kissing. Suddenly, with a wet, smacking, smooching sound, she pulled her mouth away from mine, gasped, and quickly put a finger to my lips. Then I heard what she had heard. Footsteps coming our way. Quickly, she ducked down behind a bit of scenery... I made to follow, but there wasn't room for us both, so I hurriedly tucked my shirt back in and made as though I was just returning from outside. The curtain was tweaked back, and big Charlie Griffiths eased through the gap. "'Ah, Dando, is that you?' he said, when he caught sight of me. "'Just going for a cigar. Is it brisk out?' "'Yes, somewhat,' I said, hoping that in the dark he couldn't make out how much I was sweating. "'Windy, anyway. Your hair's all over the shop.' "'Ah, thanks,' I said, smoothing it down, straightening my tie. "'Well,' I'll be getting back, I think. Good-o! I regained my seat, and a couple of minutes later Wren came through and sat beside her husband without catching my eye. A good couple of minutes more, and my heart finally stopped racing. That had been a close-run thing. If I'd been searching for a metaphorical representation of the state of my career in the Carnot organisation, if Wren and I were ever caught out, then I could hardly have done better than the scene that greeted us when we arrived at the theatre in Butte, it was nothing more than a smouldering ruin, a pile of ashes. Evidently it had burned down a few days before, and nobody had thought to tell us not to come. Here and there we could see some desultory scavenging going on, either stagehands trying to see what might be salvaged, or else emboldened chances seeing what they might get away with. It was clear that nobody was going to be doing a show there this week, next week, or any week in the near future. Stan sidled over and murmured out of the corner of his mouth. "'You don't think, do you?' What? Well, that this is part of the feud between Considine and Pantages, maybe 
Retaliation for our little stunt in Winnipeg? Payback for our payback? It's a bit much, don't you think, burning a whole theatre to the ground? I agree, Whimsical Walker said behind us. It's beyond a practical joke, so to speak, but, well, you never know what people will do when pushed too far. Not far away from where we were standing, Charlie was shifting a small pile of ashes from side to side with the shiny toe of his shoe. Some of the other acts on the bill were also hanging around, looking pretty gloomy, and it was not hard to guess why. No play, no pay, that was the reality of vaudeville, and it was hard enough to get by as it was without a blank week for the old pocketbook. "'Hey, Stan,' I sang out. "'Remember that time in Middlesbrough?' "'Oh, not Middlesbrough again,' Charlie muttered. "'What happened in Middlesbrough?' Wimmy asked. "'The theatre gave my old dad's company top billing,' Stan grinned, "'so the Carnos took over a church hall and stole our audience away. "'It was quite a thing.' "'I remembered it well. "'It was a time when Tilly and I had been particularly close, "'an exciting time, a happy time. "'I looked over at her and she smiled, clearly remembering it too. "'Well?' "'What do you say, Alf?' I said. "'Shall we find ourselves a church hall?' Alf thought for a moment, tweaking his bow-tie this way and that. "'Why not?' he said. "'Why not, indeed?' We found a meeting hall that would serve well enough, and were able to secure its use once we'd persuaded an organisation called the Industrial Workers of the World to move a rally they were planning in the hope of persuading the Anaconda Mining Corporation to improve pay and conditions for its cosmopolitan army of miners.' Their bold threats of organising industrial action were undermined, to my way of thinking, by the fact that they gloried in the nickname the Wobblies. In any case, it appeared that their rally, such as it was, would fit comfortably into a corner of Mac and Carey's Orpheum Bar, so we had a clear run. The hall was not so well furnished for a theatrical presentation as it might have been, of course, but there were no complaints, as everyone was so relieved at the prospect of some earnings for the week and it was a little out of the way for the town's entertainment seekers, being in a residential area, wedged between two head frames for the copper mines beneath our feet, and a large smelting operation with a handful of narrow chimneys belching black smoke into the sky. But Alf managed to get small handbills printed in double-quick time, and the whole company was pressed into walking the main strip, handing them out, letting people know that the new temporary vaudeville venue was in business. Wimmy couldn't believe the transformation in the town since his first visit a couple of decades before. This was just a mining camp, he said, with a few grizzled prospectors and panhandlers. We barely found enough people to fill the circus tent. Now look at it. He waved his hand at all the entertainments on offer on the main strip and at the great copper works buildings visible in the near distance. A bout of coughing overtook him then, and he seemed to be having a bit of trouble getting his breath. Perhaps it was all the smoke from the smelting works. A kindly shopkeeper hurried out with a glass of water for the old boy. "'Why don't you take a rest, Wimmy?' I said. "'We can manage this.' "'Nonsense, dear boy. I shall be fine. "'And this is part and parcel of my working life, you know. "'Get the word out. The show must go on. All that. "'Madam, can I interest you in an evening of prime entertainment?' "'We never found out whether King Greek or his people "'had anything to do with the conflagration at the Sullivan and Considine Empress. "'But if they did,' then the stunt backfired on them, as while we were turning away, the acts on the Pantages bill were performing to rows and rows of empty seats. The extra work and the harsh environment took a heavy toll on some of us, however, and we were alarmed to find Whimsical Walker slumped in a corner of Mac and Carey's bar one night towards the end of that week, his drink untouched and a trickle of blood leaking from one nostril. Wimmy, are you all right? What? Uh, ah, yes, fine, dear boy, fine. The old clown wiped the blood from his nose with a handkerchief, which we could hardly help but notice was already streaked with blood. Are you quite sure? 
Just a little nosebleed, boys. Nothing to worry about. Now who's for another? Eh? Wimmy tottered uncertainly to his feet, trying his best to convince us that all was well. Sure, the air is terrible here in the winter, Michael the barman said. The clouds keep all the smoke in, you see. I've seen this a hundred times. Exactly, Wimmy said. I'm sure I shall be quite recovered when we reach Vancouver in the Pacific Ocean air. The next evening, however, Wimmy staggered into our impromptu dressing room. Hey, who did your make-up? I said. His nose was bright red and much larger than usual, and there were two equally brightly coloured patches on his cheeks. I haven't got my make-up on yet, Wimmy said, sitting down heavily. Well, you look like a clown, my friend, Stan said, passing over one of the few hand mirrors we had about the place. Oh dear, Wimmy said when he clocked his reflection. Oh dearie me. I took a closer look, and there seemed to be angry patches of swelling erupting all over the old man's face. Does that hurt? I asked, concerned. No, I hadn't even noticed. Oh my. We should fetch a doctor, don't you think? Stan said. No, Wimmy cut in quickly. No doctors. I will be fine. I'll just cover these patches with white face. No one will know anything is amiss. Well, if you're sure you feel well enough to do the show, I said. Oh, yes. I've performed with far worse than this, Wimmy assured us, then muttering barely audibly. Whatever this is. Stan and I conferred in the corridor outside the dressing room. What do you think? Stan said. If he says he can go on, then I'm sure he knows best. Right. He'll probably just be fine, won't he? And that's what we both thought for about another hour, until, smack bang in the middle of the wow-wows, Whimsical Walker walked out onto the stage and collapsed. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chapter 30. Nooksacks. A few days later, I found myself driving a horse-drawn buckboard southwards out of Vancouver. I trundled slowly past a row of logging yards, smelling of fresh sawdust and sap, and then out of town and into a lushly forested snowscape stretching ahead for miles into the distance. I was looking first for the Nooksack River, and then I planned to head inland in search of the Nooksack Indians. Whimsical Walker was lying on the flatbed behind me, swaddled in as many blankets as I'd been able to find, his eyes flickering as he slept fitfully. This trip was his idea, a last-ditch harebrained plan to save his Carnot career. Twenty years before, he had ridden out this way with the circus wagon train, and he'd befriended a chief of the local tribe. The natives had been enchanted by his capering, apparently, and particularly taken with his brightly coloured variegated stockings. The chief had tried them on, and Wimmy had left him some pairs as a gift, thus cementing what we hoped would prove to be a lasting friendship. Now, while he was visiting the tribe, he had apparently experienced a remarkable example of healing by their medicine man, and he was staking everything on this fellow, or possibly his successor, working some magic for him. "'He gave me some medicine made from fish oil,' he said. 
Nasty stuff. But do you know, I was right as rain in no time. The old man's desperation had got to me, and so I had agreed to borrow this cart at the crack of dawn and get directions and sneak him out from under the noses of the nurses and bring him out here into the wilderness to see what could be done. I was beginning to get anxious, for we'd already been on the road for hours and I didn't much like my chances of getting back in time for the matinee. I shook my head and pulled my coat tighter around my chest against the cold. "'What the hell are we doing?' I muttered to myself, my teeth chattering. As the horses clopped along through the snow, I thought back over the events of the past few days. Back in Butte, the doctor who had attended him had said that he thought Wimmy was exhausted and just needed to rest. "'He does look awful pale, though,' he'd mused with a frown, "'and I don't much like the look of that red nose.' Uh, "'That's his make-up,' I'd said." So we'd pulled down the camp bed from the wall of the boxcar and let Wimmy sleep on the long haul up to Vancouver. Everyone was very solicitous, checking on him, bringing him drinks of water when he woke. Even the ongoing poker game had kept the noise down. Only Charlie grumbled at the inconvenience of turning the boxcar into a hospital ward. You know, it's my turn to have the bed, actually, he'd muttered as we helped Wimmy aboard, but he'd been roundly told to hush by all the women in chorus. A couple of hours into that tedious journey I looked up and saw Wren swaying along the carriage towards me. Behind her I could see Edgar reading a book, and he had only to glance up to see where I was sitting. Alf Reeves and Amy were also facing me directly, deep in discussion about something, presumably our invalid, and at the far end, nearest the door that led to the rest of the train, Tilly and Charlie were also wide awake and talking. There was simply no way she could come and snuggle flirtatiously next to me, as was her wont, without everyone seeing. I signalled her no with my eyes, but she kept on walking down the centre aisle. Thankfully she didn't join me, but kept straight on past and through towards the observation platform out back. As she passed, however, she indicated with a pointing finger that was shielded from everyone else's view by her marvellous figure that I should follow. I waited several minutes, trying to spot whether anyone was keeping an eye on me, but I saw only boredom, nonchalance and indifference on my friends' faces. They could have been putting it on, of course, but I knew them all, and they weren't that good at acting. So I stretched and got to my feet, and strolled out to get some air. My intention was to say to Wren that this was madness, but I only managed to say, this is mmm, before she clamped her delicious mouth to mine. Mmm, she agreed, and we were off again. She took my hand and guided it to her breast, and ran her fingers feverishly through my hair. Then, though, we heard footsteps, and as before, she ducked down out of sight and left me to face the music. Not genial Charlie Griffiths this time, but none other than Edgar Hurley, the horned husband himself. "'Ah, aha! Hello, Hurley,' I said. "Hm," he grunted. "'Did you see my wife outside just now?' "'Your wife?' I said. "'No, I think she went to the restaurant car a little while ago.' "'She definitely came this way,' he frowned. "'Well, perhaps you're right. I haven't been out there yet. Let's take a look, shall we?' I said, guiding him through to the open air. Behind me I could just make out the rat-scuttling footsteps of my partner in crime making good her escape, all the way to the restaurant car, if she'd picked up my heavy hint. As I almost managed to say, madness. When we pulled into Vancouver it was plain for anyone to see that Wimmy's condition had deteriorated still further. He was struggling to get his breath, the rashes on his face were so bright red they seemed almost to shine, and you could feel his fever radiating off him from a foot away. "'Straight to the hospital,' Alfred insisted. "'No arguments.' "'Once the patient was installed in a bed in the Vancouver hospital, "'a conference had taken place in the corridor outside "'between me, Charlie, and Alf. "'He'll have to go home,' Charlie said. "'Wire Carno for a replacement.' "'Hang on,' I said. "'We don't know how long he's going to be in here. "'He could be fine in a day or two. 
Is it worth waiting? Even if they let him out of here, he's going to be recuperating for who knows how long. The workload's too great for the old man, and he was too slow at the best of times. I'd rather just move on. Listen, Alf, I said, we can cover for Wimmy until he's fit again, like we did in Butte the last two shows. Alf was wavering, trying to be fair, but Charlie was insistent. He's dead weight, Charlie said, a liability. You've been pushing that all along, haven't you? I said, squaring up to him. You've wanted to get rid of him since we first set out. Well, I won't let you do it, do you hear me? It's not up to you, though, is it? Charlie sneered, and I felt myself lurching towards him to wipe the smile off his face. But Alf interposed himself. All right, let's calm down, Alf said. We have to do what's best for Wimmy. And if he's not going to be able to work, then perhaps the best thing for him is to stay here in Vancouver until he is recovered and then make his own way back to England. But I'll see that everything is paid for, and if he's not ready to work by the time we move on, we'll have to leave him behind. A doctor came to speak to us then, and he seemed quite perplexed. A most puzzling case, most puzzling, he said, looking down at his notes. Tell me... Has your colleague been handling any deceased wild animals? No, of course not, Alf said. He's a comedian. Well, I said. Well, what? Well, he's not really a comedian, Charlie butted in. That's what you were going to say, isn't it, Arthur? And I must say I concur. Will you shut up? I snapped. I was going to say there might have been a skunk. A skunk? Yes, just one dead one. Is that what's made him ill? I really don't know, the doctor said, but it was a possibility I was hoping I could rule out. A skunk, you say? We opened at the Vancouver Orpheum, filling in for our absent colleague as we had done towards the end of the run in Butte. The matinee was a good lively house, and the sketch was very slick and well received. Afterwards, Charlie was full of himself, telling anyone who would listen, That is how it should be, do you see? We've been held back on this trip, weighted down, hobbled, but now at last we are free to fly. Oh, hush, Tilly snapped at him. Have you no tact at all? Charlie looked around for support and found little Annie Forrester. You think it was better, don't you, Annie? He said, giving her his most brilliant, simpering smile. Yes, Charlie, I do, she said, blushing shyly. In the break between shows, I nipped along to the hospital for visiting hour. Wimmy was sitting up in bed. The rashes on his face were glistening with some sort of unguent, and his eyes were wide and panic-stricken. As I stepped alongside, he grabbed my wrist. Arthur, he hissed, don't let them send me home. You need to get well, I said. They want to send me home. I know they do. Don't let them do it. He was quite agitated, and it dawned on me how much this job mattered to him. There was nothing for him to go back to, and the important thing for the old clown was the dignity of being employed and the opportunity to make people laugh, to exercise the power. I looked into his pleading eyes and was struck by the sudden certainty that sending the old fellow home would be the end of him. I felt responsible, I suppose. If he'd not met me, and I'd not met Alf Reeves, then Wimmy would not even be here, and the antipathy Charlie felt towards the old fellow, well, I had a sneaking suspicion it sprang from his feelings towards me. He tried to get shot of me a second time and had been unable to do so, thanks to Alf, so he was trying to get at me through my friend. I wasn't about to let him get away with it. Which is how I came to be, freezing my backside off on this particular fool's errand. The borrowed horse nodded and plodded along through the snow-burdened trees, with no sign yet of the Nooksack River or any human habitation. "'Bloody Charlie Chaplin,' I muttered, pulling my coat closer and a sort of fur trapper's hat that I'd found in the theatre wardrobe further down over my ears. Up ahead now, I saw a little group of wooden shacks. Smoke curled out of the chimneys, and despite the cold, we could see that there were figures sitting on the verandas taking the air. 
As we drew alongside the first of these dwellings, I lifted my hat in greeting to a couple who were watching our approach, the man in a dark suit with a waistcoat, and his wife in a long frock of dark blue. "'Good morning,' I said. "'We're trying to reach the Nooksack Indian tribe.' The man got to his feet, leaving his wooden rocking chair, and raised his hat, a bowler. "'We are Nooksack,' he said. "'Aha!' When I got a closer look at him, I could see there was a Native American cast to his features which I hadn't noticed at first, wrong-footed by the sheer ordinariness of his little homestead. Looking around, I saw now that all the curious faces peering at us from in front of the other little houses had the same dark-weathered skin, dark hair and narrow eyes. I must admit I was a little disappointed. So much of my youth had been taken up with reading Penny Blood's tales of cowboys and Indians, and I'd been expecting wigwams and feathered headdresses, war paint and rain dances. Yet here was a very ordinary-looking bunch, dressed much as we ourselves were, living in a little village, just watching the world go by. I explained that our friend was unwell, and that he hoped a nooksack medicine man might be able to make him better, but my little tale was met with blank indifference. I jumped down from the cart and led the fellow round to see the patient for himself. I was, however, beginning to feel sure that we were on a wild goose chase, chasing after a wild goose, what's more, that had left a couple of decades before, never to be seen in these parts again. Wimmy tried to sit up to speak, but as it turned out, no words were necessary. As soon as the Indian clapped eyes on our friend, he let out a gasp, and then cried to his neighbours, waving them over to see for themselves. "'It is Mr. Whimsy!' The whole population of this little outpost clustered around our cart to see, and then hastily concocted a plan of action. Before we really knew what was happening, we were surrounded by all the men on horseback, and our cart was being led first down to the river, and then along the bank, heading inland towards the distant Rockies.' "'You must have made quite an impression when you were here before,' I said. "'Yes,' Wimmy croaked. "'And I look like I'm wearing my clown makeup. "'That probably helps.' "'After another half an hour, maybe more, "'we reached a larger habitation "'which seemed to be more of a centre for the community. "'There were two long buildings side by side, "'fashioned from planks of cedar wood. "'There were no windows and just a single door on each, "'and central chimneys from which dark smoke curled lazily.' We were left to wait outside while the nooksacks who had guided us here went in to announce our arrival, and I looked over the front wall, which was covered in paintings, red, white and black, representations of hands and eyes and fish, and a totem pole of carved wood thrusting up into the sky. "'This tells the history of our tribe,' one man said earnestly to me, and I nodded, interested. Suddenly, something about two-thirds of the way up the pole caught my eye, and I gasped. "'That face!' that carved face with its peeling paint and the weathered cracks beginning to split the nose, the round red nose, was that meant to be whimsical walker? Just then, the chief of the Nooksacks emerged from the main cedar plank longhouse in a state of high excitement. He was a man of perhaps sixty-five years of age, and was far more exotically dressed than the fellows who had brought us there, but still not quite in the fashion I was expecting from my boyhood reading. No, if anything, you'd have to say... He was dressed like a clown. The costume had seen better days, certainly, and had been patched and mended here and there, but this had unmistakably once belonged to Mr. Whimsical Walker. This chief came over to our cart at the gallop, and his delight on beholding its cargo was plain to see. "'Mr. Whimsy, old friend, you promised you would return one day, and here you are!' "'Good heavens!' Wimmy gasped. "'Is that my old capering outfit? Hasn't it lasted well? Arthur!' "'In my bag. Here, here.' I opened his case for him, and together we presented the chief with a brand-new silk costume from Wimmy's collection, and several new pairs of coloured tights. 
The man was absolutely thrilled to bits and skipped back indoors to get changed at once. I told you they'd come in handy, Wimmy whispered. When the chief returned, preening in his new silks like Grimaldi reborn, I stepped forward. We were hoping you could help us, I said. How, said the chief. How, I said, bowing deeply. No, I mean, how can we help? I explained again that Wimmy was ill and a veritable whirlwind of activity ensued. An almost naked chap took the lead and I took him for the tribe's medicine man. His modesty was barely preserved at the front by a sort of sporran arrangement fashioned from cedar bark, but his buttocks were exposed to the winter chill. Rather him than me, I thought. We were led down to the river, where there was a fishing party set up on the bank. This was a bit more like it, actually. A large fire in the middle of a clearing, surrounded by triangular teepees made from poles and animal hides, and canoes pulled out of the water, and behind us a massive white peak looming up from untold acres of forested foothills. The chief saw me admiring this magnificent view, and proudly declared, Quexmanit, which I took to be the name of the mountain. Wimmy and I were seated by the fire and plied with bowls of a sort of tea with a lingering taste of soil. Meanwhile the Nooksack Indians busied themselves plunging into the freezing river and bringing great handfuls of mud up onto the bank, where slowly but surely they constructed a small lodge arrangement. The chief took the opportunity to show Wimmy what I took to be an approximation of the clown's performance from twenty years before, hopping nimbly from one foot to the other, while the sick patient smiled benignly from under a pile of patterned rugs and clapped a rhythm with his hands. I thought, imagine your performance making such an impression that it's still remembered twenty years later and talked about and reenacted and carved onto a totem pole. That's success, however you cut it. Charlie Chaplin can only dream of something like this. Once the mud-dwelling, unnervingly tomb-like, actually, was completed, the nooksacks lit a fire in there, and then slid good old Wimmy reverently inside. The medicine man pranced about a bit, making incantations, and the chief sidled over to me in his new clown costume. "'Heat good,' he said, nodding encouragingly. I nodded back, crossing my fingers." Wimmy's head was sticking out of his muddy tomb, and the sweat was pouring freely from his fevered face. The old man winked up at me encouragingly. Clearly this was precisely what he'd been hoping for. At a signal from the medicine man, Wimmy was then pulled out of the heat and lifted to his feet. He swayed from side to side as the nooksacks unwrapped the various rugs and blankets he was swaddled in, until he was standing there in just his long combinations, shivering uncontrollably. The clown chief turned to me. "'Cold good,' he said. "'Are you sure?' I began, but then Wimmy was picked up bodily by four Indians, who then ran down to the river and pitched the old man into the icy water. "'No, wait!' I shouted, and galloped down to the shore. The medicine man and the chief smiled and nodded as though everything was going according to plan, but I could no longer see Whimsical Walker. I peered hard at the icy depths, flowing hard right to left, trying to make out the shape of the patient, not wanting to commit to plunging in until I was sure of his whereabouts.' Suddenly, the clown chief pointed away to our left. There, he said, and sure enough, Wimmy's pale head had bobbed to the surface a little way off. He was being carried off by the current, and we raced frantically along the bank, trying to keep up with him. He disappeared under the surface again, and re-emerged even further away, picking up pace. Something about the panicky way the nooksacks were running for their horses made me suspect that this was not part of the treatment. If they don't catch him soon, he'll be heading out to sea, I panicked as the Indians thundered by, their horses' hooves kicking up clods of earth in our faces. 
I lost sight of old Wimmy then, as his big white head glided around a bend in the Nooksack River, and we crashed through some bracken and ferns trying to cut off the corner. I was starting to think that we'd lost him. When we emerged out of the trees again, though, it was to see a more encouraging sight. Several of the Nooksacks were inching along a fallen tree trunk that was thrusting out into the current, and there, lodged in the branches at the far end, I could see the limp figure of my friend. They hauled him up out of the water and manhandled him to the shore, where I could see he was coughing and waving his arms around, so at least he was still alive for now. Our hosts didn't wait for me to catch up, but slung Wimmy over the back of a horse and thundered back to the encampment. By the time I scrambled back there, Wimmy was back in the muddy sweat coffin, warming up again, and after a warming bowl of the soil-flavoured tea, the nooksacks helped me wrap him up as snugly as possible and load him back onto the buckboard. Time was getting on, and I was desperate to get back to Vancouver, not only because I had a matinee to do, but also to return the old man to some proper medical attention. We thanked the Nooksack chief, resplendent and beaming in his new costume, and the medicine man, still not wearing very much at all, and headed back to the city. On the way back, Wimmy and I were subdued, although we did discuss the possibility that the efforts of the Indians might actually have had an efficacious effect. "'You never know,' the old clown murmured. "'It might be just what the doctor ordered.' Stranger things have happened. Yes, indeed, I said. But not many. 